Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Chapter, provides member social and educational activities and networking with agricultural communication professionals. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Chapter, provides members social and educational activities and networking with agricultural communication professionals. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Michelle Mendelson, Associate Professor of English and American Literature uh, at Mansfield College, Oxford. And her latest book is a very interesting book. It's called Making Oscar Wilde. Witty, inspiring, charismatic, say the publicity materials, Oscar Wilde was one of the greats of English literature. Today his plays and stories are beloved around the world, but it was not always so. His afterlife has given him the legitimacy that life denied him. Michelle Mendelssohn's new book, Making Oscar Wilde, reveals the untold story of young Oscar's career in Victorian England and post-Civil War America. Combining new evidence and gripping cultural history, Michelle Mendelssohn dramatizes Wilde's rise, fall, and resurrection as a part of a spectacular transatlantic pageant. Michelle Mendelssohn, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with the conception that, that we have, most of us have, of Oscar Wilde, which you say was not always so. He, he's had a very interesting afterlife, perhaps about as interesting as, as his life. Mm, that's right. That's right. I mean, the afterlife he's had is, I think, the one he wishes he had been able to live through. Um, but what I was able to discover is that um, his early life was actually full of trials and tribulations that were unsuspected. Um, the thing people know about him when they know anything about him is is what a wit and a dandy he was and how that all came to a crashing um, end around 1895 when he was tried for gross indecency, um, sent to jail, um, and basically crushed by those, by those events. Um, but what we now know and what the book details is what he learned from coming to the U.S. So the, the, the book is really about... Um, laying out that year of, of adventure and of, of learning in the U.S. Tell us a little bit about um, the Oscar Wilde before this uh, this trip. He was raised in Ireland, right? Protestant family. That's right. Raised in Ireland um, from a very prominent family, um, a very eccentric family as well. He had really a terrific start. Um, his parents uh, were spectacular people. His father um, was a doctor who had written books, um, had traveled uh, quite extensively. He was um, a surgeon who served Queen Victoria um, and was really a polymath by, by today's standards. Um, and despite his busy schedule, he also found the time to father three illegitimate children before he even got around to marrying Oscar's mother. Uh, so he was an interesting character. Oscar's mother was no slouch either. Um, she was a poetess. She was an Irish nationalist. Um, and she had very distinct ideas about what she wanted for her children. Um, Oscar was was her youngest, and she really inculcated the value of, of reading um, and the value of um, not being afraid to stand out and, and speak your mind. Um, and that certainly, you know, um, marked the young Oscar because he was 
different from other boys. He was taller, he was a little flabbier, <laughs> and he, he stood out among his peers. But he didn't stand out in the sophisticated way that we know him for today. Um, and so the accounts we have of him in school at Dublin, in Dublin um, and in Ireland are that he, you know, give us the impression that he was very, very smart, but, um, you know, not especially stylish or sophisticated. But, of course, all of that changes when he finally goes to Oxford, and that's where he becomes, or he begins to transform himself into something a little bit more like what we know of him today. Uh, he he was very, very ambitious, right? He, he wanted to be famous. He, he would even take uh, notorious, I guess. He, he just wanted to be known. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think... Um, so he certainly goes off to Oxford in the 1870s with the idea that that is the place he will make his name. Um, and he wants to be famous or notorious or something. Um, he's already established a good academic reputation with a first degree in classics that he's taken in Ireland. And so when he comes over to Oxford, he's doing over exactly the same degree, um, another degree in classics, which... I think gave him the time to look around and say, hold on a second, I think I can concentrate on making my reputation here. Um, and so he goes through a set of, you know, um, a, a set of ways of making himself better known, and that includes dressing flamboyantly, um, throwing parties, um, and we have quite a few accounts of him being very flirtatious with young women also at this time, which is another kind of aspect of Wilde that people um, don't suspect because they think of him predominantly as a gay icon rather than as someone who had a genuine interest in women. So um, there were many roads to being famous and notorious, and he seems to have traveled quite a few. Uh, so, it, uh, I mean, there's this this name, uh, St. Oscar, right? Um and and he he is a sort of patron saint of LGBTQ community, mm. or, or seen that way. He I is, don't know. He is now absolutely. Yeah. He is now, and um, and I think rightfully so. Um, and that reputation is one that is built um, by um, by scholars and some of Wilde's friends in the wake of his death in 1900. Um, however, back in the day when he was still alive, um, he was married. Um, he had two children, two little boys, so he was a father. Um, and his children talk about him getting down on all fours um, and them riding him like a horse and him, you know, being um, like a giant in the playroom with them. And so he was, he is a gay icon, absolutely, but he is also many other things as well. And I think that's partly what I wanted to do with this book, to give a, a fuller picture of the man that he was, um, the entirety of that man. Uh, so when he went to America, and I want to get to that, but but he was seen, and he even played this up, that uh, he portrayed himself as a leader of, of the aesthetic movement. Uh, he was seen, seen as a, an aesthete. Uh, t tell me about that, that, that movement. Yes. So the aesthetic movement um, 
was a, a curious movement uh, that started in the late 1870s, and it was really a movement that um, advocated something that I think most of us could get behind, which is the idea that beauty improves life, that nice things make life better. Um, and so um, it, it was, uh, it started off as a kind of elite movement, but it soon became a very kind of populist uh, movement. And for various reasons, other um, Englishmen such as John Ruskin or Swinburne weren't really available to be the leaders of this movement. And so Wilde sort of became the de facto leader only because he was the one who caught a caricature, a caricaturist's eye. Um, so in the, in the popular, um, uh, magazines of the day, like Punch, he, Wilde was being portrayed as the leader of this, this movement, and he was being made fun of because he dressed um, in these outlandish um, velvet clothes and wore knee breeches um, and was said to have a fascination for lilies and sunflowers. And this was, you know, thought to be quite, um, quite strange in a sense. Um, so, so Wilde gained this reputa- reputation of being uh, the leader of the aesthetic movement, um, but he also um, gained the reputation for being a bit of a joke, and it was that that Americans fully exploited when Wilde fully when Wilde came to America. But it was really because um, of his so-called leadership of the aesthetic movement that he was invited to the U.S. at all. Um, so it was a bit of a pact from the, with the devil from the get-go, this, um, this leadership of the aesthetic movement that he had. So, so the, the part of this that it really, <laughs> well, there's a lot of the interesting things, but the very fact of this tour, it uh, seems to me that uh, Richard Dorley Cart, Gilbert and Sullivan fame, right? Uh, yes. that he was yeah. uh, that, that Oscar Wilde was going to accompany this tour of, of this play called Patience, right? The opera, comic opera, Patience. Uh, because um, he he was I don't know was he the basis for this kind of this foppish character that's in the he was, in the opera yeah he was yeah absolutely and so um, you know because the aesthetic movement or aestheticism had become so popular Gilbert and Sullivan thought we should make a show out of this which they did and that show beca- became um, very very popular um, and it was a sort of advertising idea that they should have the real thing advertising the show and the real thing was taken to be Oscar Wilde um, so it was a kind of twofer that people <laughs> that people were being offered you know if you like the Gilbert and Sullivan show why not come see Oscar Wilde's lectures and that's how the idea developed um, around this time it's worth mentioning that American um, Americans loved hearing British uh, lecturers. There was a big fascination um, and a big fashion for bringing over people from Ireland and England um, and Scotland to talk about almost anything. Um, And on the back of that fascination, Americans had heard Charles Dickens, they'd heard the sensation writer Wilkie Collins. um, And so Doyle Cart thought Oscar Wilde was the next logical person to to send over to advertise the Gilbert and Sullivan play, but also because Americans were hungry for this kind of this kind of talk. Um, so that's why, initially at least, it seemed like a good idea to send Wild over. Um, the the curious thing though is that Wild had no training whatsoever before he went over, and we might want to talk a little bit about that because yeah. it's 
quite strange that Juan right. has this reputation for being such a talker, but he didn't when he was in the U.S. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, that's interesting because we view him through the lens, you know, the, through through the lens, through that afterlife, right, that we talked about, right? Um, and, and those mm. and all those witty lines that that uh, many of us can quote. Many of those lines we we tend to put those obviously in Oscar Wilde's mouth because he created those lines, but but he was not that. He was not that spellbinding uh, character, I guess, at least initially on this tour. That's right. So that that I have to admit was one of the um, one of the moments, you know, in my research where I just I sat bolt upright because you know if there's anything that people, you know, the man and woman on the street think about Oscar Wilde, it's that he was a natural born wit, and you know you could extend that and say people tend to think that about the Irish in general, you know, that they're just they're good talkers. Um, but in fact, Wilde was. Um, a talker of the monopolist sort. That's how his um, colleagues at Oxford referred to him, a talker of the monopolist sort. He wasn't someone who, um, you know, wanted to hear anyone else talk. He only wanted to hear himself talk. And that's why uh, when he came to America, where interviewing was a whole new fashion in journalism, he really found a great outlet um, because all of a sudden, you know, these journalists were paid to sit and listen to him and transcribe what he wrote. Um, and the fascinating thing about this was that when Wilde would tour the country, he would read the transcripts of his interviews, and so he could see how what he had said worked out on the page. And with every interview, he improved on what he was saying. So with every interviewer, he became wittier and funnier and better <laughs> at doing it. Um, and so it's during the course of Wilde's American tour that we can really see him developing his signature voice, something that wasn't there before, but that really comes out of um, of this process of being interviewed by by Americans. So that was one of the fun discoveries. Um, yeah, that's, made. yeah, that's fascinating because we tend to think of this as spontaneous and uh, and inherent. I guess yeah. you know Oscar Wilde was born with this, but I guess he had to develop that. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look back at his life, even all the way back to when he was a student at Oxford, um, he would hide away to study. Why? Because, you know, he wanted everyone to think he was born with it. He wanted everyone to think he was effortlessly brilliant, you know, that he had spezzatura, as, as the Italians call it. Um, and so there was none of this, you know, sweating and swatting in public. Um, and I should say as an aside, you know, I was a I was a student at Cambridge myself, and I'm and I'm Canadian, so I think I have these kind of North American values. But <laughs> it was surprising to me how how my British counterparts, um, you know, always made everything seem so effortless because they seemed not to be working. <laughs> but in fact, they were working quite hard. They were just hiding themselves away. I don't think, you know, I think in North America, we sort of pride ourselves on showing everyone how hard we're working. Um, not so over there. <laughs> Uh, I guess it would, it would be considered gauche to show how hard you were. It seemed it had to seem effortless. I, I'd like to take just Absolutely. a short aside there. So Canadian at Cambridge, how how was that? Was there culture? I guess as Americans, we would uh, tend to um, chauvinistically <laughs> think that well, there's no there's no culture clash there, but I'm I'm sure there was. Or, or I think I mean it was adjustment. a great time. I have to admit it was one of you know the yes it was a, it was a fantastic time. There were. Um, I mean, Canada used to be a colony, <laughs> so I think when you grow up in a, with a colonial mindset and you're you're confronted with a whole bunch of things, but it, it was a it was a terrific time, and 
I, I would do it over in a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a brief break when we come back uh, more with Michelle Mendelson, her new book, a fascinating book, it's called Making Oscar Wilde. It's about a, uh, the, the central piece of the book is a seminal uh, 1882 um, tour that Oscar Wilde took to America. And uh, during that tour, he uh, want to get into the, these things. He met Walt Whitman, I think. Um, mm-hmm. He sought out Jefferson Davis, the uh, former president of the Confederate States of America. I want to hear that story as well. Much more to come. And from our community calendar, coming up on Monday, January 21st, an event will be held at Dixie, Dixie State University titled the Southern Utah Clean Air Forum, Legislation for a Brighter Future. It will feature a discussion of proposed federal, state, and local legislation fo- focused on reducing energy emissions to improve our health and our children's futures. That's 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Monday, January 21st at the Boeing Auditorium of the Udvar Hazy Business School at Dixie State University. The Access Utah episode that you're listening to was first broadcast in September of 2018. We're back with Michelle Mendelssohn. Her book is Making Oscar Wilde. It's the uh, formative years of Oscar Wilde, especially an 1882 uh, tour to uh, America. And uh, we're uh, talking on tape this part of the program. Uh, so, Michelle Mendelssohn, uh, I wanted to dive into this American tour um, Maybe starting point, if I insert myself in this, that's always dangerous, but <laughs> if if I'm a well-known fop and uh, an operetta, uh, a comic opera, is making fun of me, and then, I, and then I'm given an opportunity to accompany this comic opera across America, I might think twice. Mm, I love this scenario, actually. Um, that's right. Well, so... You would do that, and I think any sensible person would think twice about the offer Wilde had received to, to basically be the real thing to this um, comic opera. But what we need to remember is that at this time, Wilde didn't have much going on. He just finished his undergraduate degree, and he was kind of kicking around. He was unemployed. He tried to get um, some work in London. Uh, he had about 200 pounds a year from his uh, inheritance from his father. Um, but the only work he could really find was basically offering his services as a personal shopper. Um, he said that he had excellent taste in neckties and in Bibles. Um, but uh, and he tried to get work uh, as a teacher. He applied for fellowships um, at various universities, uh, but, but he couldn't find anything. And so when this offer to go to America and lecture came, he leapt at it because it was really the only opportunity um, he had. Um, and he was given the assurance that he would be taken care of, an assurance that his managers didn't, in fact, deliver on, um, which turned quite um, tragic, you know, for parts of the tour. But so it seemed like a really good idea. Um, And, of course, he arrives, and he is met right away by this impressive uh, Civil War veteran, Colonel Morse, um, who looks like he's going, he's got everything in hand, and he's going to train Wilde to be um, the terrific public speaker we we know him as. Um, But, in fact, as, you know, as transpires over time, Morse is more interested in making the dollars roll in than in serving Wilde's interests. Um, and one of the ways Wilde is thinking about the lecture tour is as a serious way of promoting his ideas. Um, and so the lecture that Wilde 
develops is actually, and this is often surprising to people, it's actually very boring, very dry. It's two hours long, um, and he has over 80 pages of notes for it. Um, and so it's no surprise that, it, you know, he delivers it once, and then people aren't so interested in it anymore. Um, so, yes, he's made a pact with the devil by coming over, and he's made a pact with a, another devil, Colonel Morse, uh, his, his manager, who is more of a mismanager than anything else. And I uh, think audiences... Instead of cheering, they jeer, I think, at least in some places, right? <laughs> That's right. That is right. Um, you know, as the tour goes on and he, he begins in New York City, he goes to Chicago, the Midwest, uh, goes all the way over to, to Utah, to Salt Lake, uh, to Denver, over to California, and then down south. But um, audiences increasingly come to see him because he's being dressed up as a fop. So if you can imagine, he's over six feet tall. He's uh, about 225 pounds. He's wearing velvet knee breeches, so they stop at the knee, and then he's got these silky stockings, patent leather, black patent leather pumps, um, and he's wearing a sort of frilled shirt. So everything is being done to make him look strange and extraordinary. And people are coming more to see him than to listen to this serious, boring lecture he's, he's giving. And so it's not surprising then that once they've caught sight of him, then they just make fun of him. And so there's not much um, attention paid to his aesthetic message, uh, which is very disappointing to him. And Wilde reacts in two ways to this, to this jeering instead of cheering, as you so nicely put it. For the first part of the tour, he seems to want to kind of kill them with kindness. You know, he smiles on on all of this, and he uh, says a lot of nice things, particularly about American women, um, and he's he seems, you know, determined to make the best of the situation. But as the tour progresses and things become not only uh, more and more negative, but more and more racialized, where he's being depicted uh, as, a, as a sort of black-faced Irishman, then Wilde begins to bike back, and he begins to insult Americans, and he has some very uh, harsh things to say about American people, uh, about American women in particular, and about American architecture. And to, to be honest, Tom, he said some pretty harsh things about Salt Lake. Um, and, you know, this is, I think, not, a, not because he um, had anything against Lake per se, but I think because at this point in his tour, he was just fed up, mm. um, and this had become his modus operandi. So, uh, if I may, shall I, uh, yes. may I say a few of the things? I'd, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be curious, he, yeah. He's, uh, you know, he comes to, to Salt Lake City, and he's... Um, He's given quite a, a warm reception before his lecture. The LDS president, John Taylor, personally gives him a tour of, of Salt Lake City, gives him a tour of his house. Um, and Wilde says afterwards that he's a, you know, a very uh, charming old man um, who has five wives. Um, but then Wilde goes on to say in interviews afterwards that um, Salt Lake City is the first city that ever gave a chance to ugly women, um, and then he goes on to say that the tabernacle has the shape of a soup kettle, 
and is the most dreadful building he's ever seen. So he's not looking to make friends by making these comments. <laughs> and finally, he says that uh, the families are very, very ugly. And I think, you know, hearing this today, it's shocking. Um, but we probably need to put this in the context of someone who's exhausted mm-hmm. from being ridiculed at every turn um, and, is, and is just trying to... Um, sort of lash out and and diffuse some of the steam um, from what's built up from previous incidents. I guess testing his desire to be, you know, famous or he'll take notorious (laughs) being treated as as a notorious figure, maybe would have tried his his patience. Exactly. Tried his patience. (laughs) I mean, one one other thing to say that is really perceptive that we get in the, um, in the Salt Lake newspapers of the day, um, we get the, you know, the, the reviews of the lectures, uh, of Wilde's lecture in Salt Lake all say that, um, you know, that it's, um, that he's an enthusiast without enthusiasm. They say that he doesn't speak particularly well. They say he's a pe- peculiar individual. Um, but one thing that they do say that really opens up um, the, the racial issue, which is a big part of the, the sort of secret and unsuspecting side of, of Wilde that people don't know much about, is that the Salt Lake Weekly Herald says he's not quite as entertaining as female minstrels. So that's pointing to the idea that he's being compared to blackface minstrels, but also to cross-dressing performers, which is one of the things I discovered, that actually there were shows going on around the same time that were taking Wilde's boring lecture and performing it in blackface, in, you know, by men who blacked up and who dressed as women. Um, and so he's being compared to to this spoof, racialized, degrading ethnic caricature. And this, I think, is really what gets to him. And this is why he's lashing out when he's talking about American people and American architecture. He's just fed up with these um, degrading depictions. If you just joined us, we're talking with Michelle Mendelssohn. Uh, She is uh, an associate professor at... uh Oxford University, and her latest book's fascinating book. It's called Making Oscar Wilde, and uh, the making of Oscar Wilde uh, has a lot to do, Michelle Mendelssohn says, with his 1882 tour uh, through America. We're talking about that on the program uh, today. So I want to get into this in more depth. Um, this is just fascinating. Tell me, tell me the account of, of you um, finding this color poster. This is a library in Los Angeles, <laughs> I think. Which just just surprising to no end, and it it has elements here that you know surprised me when when you were telling me about it in the book, and then we could get into discussion of um, uh, you know race in America and how Oscar Wilde fit in there. Mm -hmm. Sure, Um, I began researching this book not intending to write a biography. Um, I was intending to to look at Oscar Wilde's writings, but I was in this library, the William Andrews Clark. Memorial Library in L.A., um, and I opened up one of these manila folders, as you do, of thinking I would find something very vanilla, and out came uh, a caricature of Oscar Wilde uh, with Afro hair looking like nothing I'd ever seen before, um, and the caption <clears throat> said, what's the matter with Oscar Wilde, or <clears throat> excuse me, something to that effect. Um, and concluded that he'd gone wild. And it was such a curious, racialized, ugly 
picture like nothing I'd seen before. So I didn't know what it was about, and I put it away because, you know, <laughs> you can't know everything in one lifetime. But then the next file I opened up had a series of pictures of him, uh, again in blackface, one as an Irishman, one, one as a Chinese man, one as a Frenchman. And that's when I started to think, okay, there's something going on here. And this something is not something that's ever been part of his biography before. And that's what ultimately led me to discover um, the links between his life and um, the history of Irish Americans in the U.S. and the ways in which they were depicted as monkeys, as apes um, in blackface, and the ways in which his own life intersected with the great waves of immigration uh, to the U.S. in the late 19th century. Um, so that that was, you know, the unsuspected story behind those images. But it took me almost 10 years to figure out that story and to find the archives to to lead me to that story, um, which was a lot of fun. So uh, echoes in all of this, too, today. Um, I wonder, so uh, tell me about that hierarchy, the, the Irishman. I think we'd, like we'd read this in the history books. We don't. This kind of helped me to to visualize this, to, to see where... Where I guess the latest immigrants or the the immigrants that were placed on the on the bottom um were how they were seen um so I guess the at the bottom were African Americans and Irish immigrants and they they were kind of conflated is that what happened that's right i mean so you need to we need to remember that um you know the Civil War had ended not so long ago um so we had a new kind of class of newly enfranchised African-Americans, who were now competing for work with freshly arrived uh, Irish men and women. And and so both of these groups, the Irish and these newly enfranchised African-Americans, are at the bottom of the social scale. And, and the animosity between them um, stems from the fact that they're both perceived by white, primarily Anglo-Saxon Americans, um, as, as less than. Um, and so... And so in an attempt to um, kind of distinguish themselves uh, from African-Americans, a lot of uh, Irish immigrants, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them espouse quite quite uh, anti-black sentiments. Um, And as a result of that, or or partly in relation to that, we get the explosion of blackface minstrel show culture and a lot of the top performers in these minstrel shows happened to be Irishmen because it was almost exclusively men who could perform on stage. There are a few women coming through at this point but not many Um, and so that's where we get this curious bubbling up of um, kind of racial animosity between the Irish um, and and African Americans and Wild gets kind of rolled into all of this. Which I assume would have been very surprising to him, but what were his views on on race? Right. I think it was surprising to him. And his views on race, I mean, that's another thing that that America taught him. You know, he, um, his views on race certainly evolved um, because of the time he spent uh, in the U.S. Um, and he he said uh, later on in life that to mature its powers to concentrate its actions, um, that the Celtic intellect, so the Irish, had to cross the Atlantic, um, and that um, exile in America had been to the Irish what captivity was to the Jews. He, he concluded by saying America and American influences educated the Irish. So 
I think he went over to America thinking of himself as a sort of Irish aristocrat, which is fair enough. But the Irish Americans he met during his tour were poor, simple folk, the likes of which he probably hadn't socialized with before. And in his St. Patrick's Day speeches, when he meets them, he begins to see himself in them. Um, and I think that's a really important transformation for him. Um, and so he f- begins to feel closer to them. Um, one of the more troubling aspects of this affinity and affiliation with his Irish heritage, however, is that when he finally goes down south, particularly to Louisiana, uh, he feels the need to conjure up the ghost of his, uh, of his uncle, his uncle who had been a, uh, a white supremacist, uh, the leader of the secession, um, and someone who ardently supported the Confederacy. Um, so Wilde's uh, feelings about race are way more complicated and way more interesting, I think, than people have uh, assumed until now. Yeah, that, that's surprising that he would identify in any way with the uh, you know, the, the Southern whites, the, the the oppressors in this case, when he himself is 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 being uh, you know oppressed, attacked for this for his perceived race. Um, mm. Tell tell me about uh, anything you want to say on that, and then tell me about uh, he th- this this odd episode. Very surprising. He he sought out Jefferson Davis. That's right. So to answer your first question first about, you know, why he identifies a surprising identification with with the Southern cause, one of the things he says is that the Southern cause uh, during the Civil War is very similar to the Irish cause. And we need to remember that at this point in time, you know, when Wilde is going around America talking about how everyone should uh, be interested in art and how everyone should care about improving their homes, um, there's... There's a war going on uh, over in Ireland. And some Irish newspapers are saying, you know, who does he think he is, that la-di-da young man going over to America, shirking his duty when he should be back home, helping defend the mother country, you know, Ireland. Um, so so that's one of the things that um, is going on. Meanwhile, you know, privately, he's having a horrible time of it, and he's being degraded and racialized. So... I think on the one hand, he's raising this affiliation with Southern whites primarily to capture them as an audience, uh, primarily as a move to get them to come to his lectures, um, because it seems to me he, he thinks of it as a strategy to, um, to get them into the lecture halls. Uh, we can call it what it is now, you know, a racist strategy, um, but I think at this point he's so down on his luck and so down and out um, that it, it seems like, a, a, you know, a good idea to some extent. Um, and then he takes it one step further, and as you suggested, he goes off to visit Jeff Davis. Um, and that, that was a real, um, a real shocker, I think. Um, yeah. What, <laughs> how did you use Jefferson <laughs> Davis, of course, this is what, 20 years on or something from the Civil War, right? Um, That's right. So, so he, I mean, Jefferson Davis is really, you know, um, basically sitting, sitting in, at home and, um, not, not 
even probably aware of Oscar Wilde, but Oscar Wilde begins talking about how much, you know, in the press, how much he admires Jefferson Davis, how there's nobody else he would rather meet, um, because by this point he's already met uh, Walt Whitman um, and quite a few other important folks, but he says nobody else he'd rather meet. He goes out of his way, takes an extremely long train ride uh, to see to go see Jefferson Davis at his house. And when he gets there, Davis is completely uninterested in Wilde. Um, but Wilde, you know, um, feels that he needs to pay his allegiances to this, by his, you know, to his mind, this great man. Um, so this really complicates the image of him, um, of Wilde as someone who, um, uh, you know, um, <laughs> Is, is a fighter for human freedom and human dignity of a kind, you know, that we would um, necessarily, uh, with whom we want to align ourselves today. I think there are aspects of his struggle, particularly around, um, you know, sexual rights um, and and later on women's rights that we can get behind. But I think this particular chapter, uh, his his affiliation with Jefferson Davis, is is a shocker and something it's very difficult to 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 excuse at this at this stage Let's take another break. When we come back, our last segment with Michelle Mendelssohn. She's author of a uh, interesting new book. It's called Making Oscar Wilde. It's uh, about his 1882 uh, tour of uh, post-Civil War America and how that helped to form him. He was uh, a cog in all of these forces, but he also was very consciously uh, creating a persona, an image. I want to talk uh, more about that when we come back. More with Michelle Mendelson following this break. Next time on Living on Earth, the new Democratic majority in the House has formed the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. I anticipate the members of the Select Committee will press for every piece of legislation that comes to the floor of the House to be looked at through a green lens. I'm Steve Kerwood, and we'll chat with Committee Chair and Florida Representative Kathy Castor on the next Living on Earth from PRI. That's up next at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Many of us are still processing the Kavanaugh hearings in the 2018 elections. We're absorbing the news and wondering where the Me Too movement is and where it's going. As a part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, Utah Public Radio is hosting a town hall panel discussion titled Me Too Continues. Where are we post-Kavanaugh post-election? Join us Friday, January 25th at 6 p.m. in the Lundstrom Student Center on the USU campus. Come with your questions and comments and join the discussion. Details at upr.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're back with Michelle Mendelson. The book is Making Oscar Wilde. So, Michelle Mendelson, I'm interested in how uh, Oscar Wilde's American Adventures uh, shaped him and how he, during this time, consciously shaped himself. Uh, he, I think he was, he's very modern in, in this way, right? He was, he, he set out to develop a, a persona, an image, I think. Mm, I think that's right. I mean, he, he set out to become famous. Uh, however, he did have these American managers, and I think that's, a, that's something that we don't, um, we don't give those managers, those Americans, enough credit um, in the shaping of Wilde's persona. We tend to imagine that he came up with all of this on his own. Um, so, for example, when Wilde arrives in the U.S., it's his manager who dresses him up in this outlandish costume. Um, uh, 
And it's his manager who sets up these lectures and really sets the tone. And when you look at the pictures of Wilde before he went to America and after, you really feel like you're seeing some, you know, some, um, something from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Or, you know, he has been zhuzhed up, <laughs> to use the language. You know, he, uh, he's been transformed. It's, he's become a beautiful, striking young man, whereas before he was kind of a flabby one that you might overlook. So, so that's, part of what is going on. Um, the other thing, just to come back to something we were talking about earlier, is the way he learns to speak in the U.S. It's the, um, it's the time at which interviewing is being developed. It's a completely new thing. And so Wilde becomes really adept at crafting sound bites. And those sound bites he's giving American journalists are eventually going to turn into those witty um, sort of witty phrases that are going to become his signature in his plays later on in The Importance of Being Earnest, um, in Lady Windermere's Fan. Um, so the exciting thing about Wilde's time in America is that we can see the genesis of all of these um, ways of speaking and behaving that are later going to manifest in such a flamboyant way in London in the 1890s and the naughty 90s as they um, come to be known. How much of this was his own conscious creation? How much of it was uh, himself being sort of thrown around by these forces into which he was thrown in America? Um, it's a, it's hard to give you a figure on that, but I think the letters he wrote at this time really give us a clear sense of Wilde as someone who had a private face and a public face. And you might say, well, doesn't everybody? But with Wilde, it was quite extreme. Um, and for instance, when these racialized caricatures emerge, Wilde tells his manager in a letter quite clearly that these are beneath notice, that he doesn't want them circulated or talked about. His manager's instinct is that all any publicity is good publicity. And that's not Wilde's instinct. And so there's a real, a really fine balance being struck here between who Wilde wants to be, which is, you know, a serious thinker, a good public speaker, someone's recognized for having interesting thoughts about art, about society, and the person that his manager wants him to be, which is essentially a circus act. And by the way, P.T. Barnum actually takes a front row seat in Wilde's lecture because P.T. Barnum, you know, the, the leader of the greatest show on earth, is actually sizing Wilde up as a potential exhibit. This is how much of a freak he's being considered. Mm. So those two things are in really fine balance um, throughout his time in the U.S. And he, he was not selected by P.T. Barnum, I'm guessing. He was not selected by P.T. Barnum, which is a relief. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Could have been a whole different history there. Uh, and yeah, in fact, right. just to illustrate the the, the abuse that uh, Wilde was taking with the, you know, this racialized, uh, I guess, uh, images that some people saw, that the prism that the people saw him through, one lady apparently came up to him and said, well, at last I've seen a gorilla. Right? This was a mm. actual incident, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah, I mean, people, so he, he, uh, he would parade up and down the training platforms to pass the time, but uh, people did come up to him and say that sort of thing to him. There were also um, depictions in um, newspapers and magazines of the day um, depicting him as as a monkey, a sunflower worshipping monkey. Um, the Washington Post compared him to the wild man of Borneo um, and said that the advantage that the wild man of Borneo had was that he didn't try and lecture. Um, 
so <laughs> it was it was pretty uh, you know tough the reception he was giving in the U.S. and the more time he spent in the U.S., the more Americans were going to see the Oscar Wilde blackface shows rather than the actual Oscar Wilde. So he had to confront the fact that there were, that he was making almost no money on these lectures, that they were, this was a grueling tour, and um, the audiences, you know, were going to his competitors. Very, very tough, tough time for him. Uh, you, uh, I think... I think I don't know the answer to this question, but my question is: uh, Am I seeing this, the you know, totally through the the eyes of today? Uh, I would have thought perhaps uh, a person receiving this kind of abuse uh, might have developed some empathy toward African Americans and what they were going through. But I, I don't know if that's just a looking from our times, or or maybe he did. I don't know. Well, I have to admit that as a biographer, I wanted that for him. You know, I really wanted to find that because that certainly was my conception of him, given you know his, given his um, sympathies in other aspects of his life. Um, and throughout this tour, one had one or several African American valets, which means that you know his the people he was closest with during this really difficult time were African American. Um, but in fact, he writes about. Um, his valet um, in pretty racist terms and says that he is like a Christie minstrel, so a blackface minstrel, that the valet is like a blackface minstrel except that he knows no riddles. Um, and at the same time, he's working closely with this valet. So, for example, whenever interviewers um, come to see Oscar Wilde, he and his valet have this shtick, this kind of show they do for journalists where um, – the, the journalist will come into an, uh, come into a completely empty hotel room, and then this black valet will appear, and he'll throw down a, a fur rug. Then Wilde appears, throws down his cape, and almost kind of faints. Um, and the valet catches the, the the cape, and Wilde reclines almost hor- horizontal on a sofa. And then the interview begins. It's a sort of song and dance thing they have going. So, for all these reasons, you'd think Wilde would be close to and sympathetic to these African-American men he's working with. Um, but the, the archives don't allow us to get um, very close to that story because at the time African-Americans' names were uh, not recorded in uh, the majority of uh, white American newspapers. So I did my darndest to try and track, um, track them down, but I just wasn't able to. Mm. You say he was, uh, you know, this is a black mark uh, against him, a uh, negative mark. Um, there, you say he was involved in other, you know, socially progressive movements where maybe we can root for him a little more as we're as we're reading his history. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I think his. So one of the things that I I found most um, compelling and really um, quite exciting was his sympathy for uh, for women and his admiration for American women in particular. Um, when he comes over to America, he sees a kind of new generation of women who are independent, who are running things. Um, and so, for example, the women who host him at evening events, uh, who have, you know, coteries and salons and soirees, all of these American women um, are kind of running the show. They are custodians of their own turnstile. And 
in a sense, they remind him of his mother, who was very much her own woman. But in another sense, he sees these women, these American women, as the future. Um, and he finds this inspiring. One American woman he is particularly inspired by is Julia Ward Howe, um, the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, and he writes her extremely flattering, flirtatious letters and wants to have dinner not with her and her family, but only with her. Um, and and he visits her several times, and there are rumors going around that he's after her young daughter. But I think it's quite clear from these letters that he is really genuinely interested in her. Um, and it's precisely this type of woman that he um, depicts in his plays, um, and that later on when he becomes the editor of a really cutting-edge British magazine called Woman's World, um, later on he's writing and editing the woman's world, for a kind of American woman reader, someone who's independent and smart, who wants to know about what's going on in the world. And I think he got his idea of that kind of woman from American women. Um, so that's a good thing that comes out of, the, out of his time in the U.S., definitely. Uh, just a few minutes left. I want to ask um, if you see any of the American experience in his works uh, there, you know, there are themes which I think I could uh, I could match up. I wonder what your view is. I, well, I'd love to hear the views you can match <laughs> well, up too, uh, you know, social, <laughs> social prejudice, you know, is, is a theme he he mm -hmm. rails against. Uh, this this idea of hierarchy is is countered in in you know some of his works. Absolutely, yeah. I think that is that is one of the the strongest. Uh, to my mind, some of the strongest themes, not taking um, what society says at face um, value and running, uh, running, going against the grain uh, when necessary. Um, it seems to me that's something that he saw quite strongly in the U.S. Um, and that may have made its way into the place. But in terms of, you know, something I can trace a direct line through the archives, um, for it's really the sound of those plays that to me um there's a direct line between minstrelsy and the sound of those witticisms in the plays um and people pick up on that in the late 19th century um they describe some of his plays like a woman of no importance it gets ridiculed as christy minstrels of no importance and so what's fascinating is that even you know people could hear that in the 19th century of course minstrelsy is dead and gone now, thank God. And so we can't hear that when we look at his plays. But it's interesting to kind of dig up uh, those resonances because they are buried in there, absolutely. That's very interesting uh, because uh, the way I receive his plays, especially those witticisms, I receive it as very British. I guess that's that's been my perspective, just consuming that. But it's interesting that the genesis, at least the rhythms of some of those come from America. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to uh, I want to talk about uh, the image and celebrity. Um, he 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 set out to find celebrity, right? That's that he he wanted to be known. Um, all the, that makes his downfall all the more painful, right? Uh, because he, um, because he uh, was was considered after that uh, taboo after he was found uh, guilty of gross indecency. I think was the charge. Mm -hmm. And so that must right. must have been especially painful for him because he had set out to uh, to to craft an image to be a celebrity, and then that was essentially mm. erased in a certain way at the end. Yeah, I mean, worse than erased, I think he um, 
is he never sees his children again afterwards um and um his wife um and and children have to change their family name and essentially live you know a different life out of england um he goes to prison and even when he's released he has to take on a different name sebastian melmoth um and he still you know parades around paris in these um and these threadbare suits that his friends give him, um, but he is a broken man. It's all disappeared. Um, his fingers have been uh, torn up because he was forced to do hard labor while he was in prison to shred ropes, um, and so there's no question that he will be penning any uh, any more plays. Um, what is interesting, though, is that again America comes to his uh, comes to his aid because. While he, you know, sinks into a nominee and um, it becomes a nobody, it's American producers who dare to put on his plays at this time when nobody else would. And it's American producers who, it turns out, had made their money in blackface minstrelsy. So this whole extraordinary story of blackface minstrelsy has, in a sense, a happy end uh, because it means that his works live on uh, because uh, those those theater those American theater empresarios um, can afford to put on wild plays and keep at least his literary reputation alive. Uh, finally, uh, I wonder what you what's your takeaway? What's your big takeaway? What what do you most want uh, people to t- take away from the Oscar Wilde's American experience and, and how that formed him? What I most want people to take away from Oscar Wilde's American experience is that even though he was uh, a white, quasi-aristocratic, quasi-aristocratic Irishman, um, he was vulnerable. Uh, that he, you know, that his whiteness, that his masculinity, none of that protected him, and he had vulnerabilities that he discovered. And it seems to me that makes him more like us, more more human. Um, that in a sense we are all vulnerable. Um, in in various ways, whether we care to acknowledge it, uh, acknowledge it publicly or not. Well, very interesting. Uh, we have spent the hour with Michelle Mendelssohn. She's associate professor of English and American literature uh, at Mansfield College, Oxford. Author of several books. The latest is out now. Making Oscar Wilde. Michelle Mendelssohn, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.